Well, why don't we start with the word of prayer? I know we have much to discuss today. I know that God is going to compress it all before 12.15 at the same time. But we need to pray for the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, I'm just reminded what it says in Joel chapter 2. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Father, we need the Holy Spirit right now. These are very unusual times that we're living in. And God, we need a message that will search our hearts and will try us in the fire of the Spirit. God, we pray you would bring the the heavenly surgical knife right to our very hearts, Lord, and you would cut away the evil that's there, that we may reflect your character more and more to this dying world. Jesus, we thank you for every person who's here today because we know there's something special you want to communicate. We pray that as we come into contact with your Holy Spirit, that we'd walk away changed. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The name of the sermon's called Scary Stuff. Scary Stuff. There was one thing I forgot to tell you, and that was that when we were passing out that glow to that pastor, he did lay us a, 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 a very special rebuke I think I needed to hear. He said this, if you guys believe in health, why are you, pass- why are you getting candy? It was a rebuke that I took and I internalized very well. All right. Well, name of the sermon's called Scary Stuff. Scary Stuff. Now, this week I actually got into a fight. Did you know that? Pastor Nell actually got into a fight. I got hit in a lot of different places. You guys may notice a black eye as well. I actually got beaten up. I lost. I lost a fight. And the individual I lost the fight to, his name was James. Unfortunately, James wants to talk to you today as well. Everybody take your Bible and let's go to the book of James. James has something very interesting to share with each and every one of us today. Something that's going to really, really challenge you. That's going to step all over you, but that's okay. Because we want to become the very best people that we can become. Amen? So we're going to the book of James today. The book of James today. Book of James. All right. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. That's page 1,158. The book of James, starting with verse 1. Book of James, starting with verse 1. James is after Hebrews. Very first word of the book of James is what? James. What a very interesting way to start the book. James. The bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus, what? Christ. Now I want you to pay attention. James introduces himself in this letter. Something very interesting to understand about James. The word James is actually a derivative of the word or the name Jacob. There was actually a lot of variations on the name Jacob. James was the first part or the root of Jacob. Very interesting. A lot of Israelite parents named their children after biblical patriarchs so that that individual would always be reminded of the story of that patriarch as a lesson or a reminder to them. So James writes the letter of James, and he's, he's writing it to a church that's going through a lot of uh, various challenges and trials and issues. James, This James is actually not the brother of John. 
the brother of John, James, actually died early on in the book of Acts. Acts chapter, I think it was 12. But this James is actually the brother of Jesus. In other words, this was one of the sons of Joseph. From scripture, you can tell that Joseph had about four different sons. Josie, James, Jude, and Simon. Not Simon Peter, but a different Simon. And James was actually one of the brothers of Jesus. Probably not one of the the sons of Mary, but rather one of the sons of Joseph, prior to the marriage to Mary. Now, James is very interesting because James was actually called a pillar of the church by Paul himself. When you go to the book of Acts, you discover that James also kind of held the position of a general conference president. So when there was this great dispute in the Jerusalem council, it wasn't Peter who stood up, it was actually James who stood up and made the final decision about what to do. So James was somebody who was a great pillar in the early church. He had a lot of influence. He was somebody who dealt with a lot of troubles, a lot of challenges, a lot of administration issues. He dealt with people. He dealt with what? People. I don't know about you, but how many people here feel like the greatest challenges in life come because of other people? Raise your hand. Amen. Now, how many people here also believe that the greatest joys come from other people? Raise your hand. Amen. It's so interesting. The thing that causes the greatest amount of joy and happiness is relationships, healthy relationships with other people. The things that cause us the most amount of pain and sorrow is unhealthy relationships with people. And so what James does, James has a very interesting task before him. He has to write a letter to the church. The church is going through a lot of issues, a lot of troubles, a lot of uh, different things. And he has to try to rally them together to continue the work of God. So we're going to James chapter 1. Starting with verse 1 again. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. Greetings. Watch what he says in his veritable grocery list of lessons. Very first thing. My what? Brethren. Count it all what? Joy when you fall into what? Various trials. Notice this, the very first thing he can tell the church is this, something they needed to hear. He said, count it all what? Joy. When you fall into what? Various trials. Now something to pay attention to is the word count. The word count in Greek is actually a mathematical term. In other words, if you're looking at, say, a budget, and you're placing things in your category, and you're hoping to see what the the final counting is, you're looking to see what the conclusion of the budget is. And so when he is saying this, what James is saying is like, when you're looking at trials and you're trying to add it up, trying to make sense, he says, look, go right down to it, mathematically come to the the right conclusion, and it is this, count it all what? Joy when you fall into what? Various trials. Now, how many people here fall into various trials? Raise your hand. Okay, if you have a car that's before the year 2000, I'm sure you're going to have car troubles, right? Probably with today, some of today's cars, it's probably a little bit later on as well, right? So there are trials of cars, transportation. We deal with trials with other people. We deal with trials at our work. We deal with trials at our, 
at our job, with our families. Everywhere around us, we're dealing with trials. It's interesting, he says, when you fall into various kinds, this is in King James, diverse kinds of trials. Not just one kind of trial, but different kinds. And he says something so incredible, he says, look, count it all joy, add it all up, and he says, look, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He didn't say when you cause various trials. He said when you fall into various trials. Now let me ask you a question. When you think of the trials that surround your life right now, are you thinking, oh, this is just a joyful experience for me right now? Are you thinking that? Are you thinking, wow, I just, I'm just really excited about the way my car broke down on the way to church? I'm just so excited about that. You know what's very intrinsic to trials is pain and sorrow. I mean, if it doesn't cause you pain, it's probably not a trial, right? It just, if it doesn't cause discomfort, it's probably not a trial. It's just a challenge that you can overcome. But what, Paul said, what James says is very important. He says this, look, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Okay, you go to the average person who doesn't know anything about Christ, and you say, and they're going through a trial, and you say to them, I want you to count it all joy right now. They're going to look at you, and they're going to say, what for? But watch what James says as the reason why. It's so powerful. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, in other words, the sentence is not stopped, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. Okay, now notice this. This is extremely important. He says this. Trials will have your faith being, it will test your faith, and that testing of your faith will produce patience. Now the word patience is not the word patience that you find when a mother's probably taking care of a group of screaming kids and she's like, I'm just trying to be patient. That's not that kind of patience. This is actually an active endurance. It is not the patience of when you're just trying to keep calm and dealing with a bunch of loud kids. It's actually an active endurance that has to do when you're trying to finish a marathon and you're right down to that very last lap. And he says this, James is trying to make this point. He's saying, look, the testing of your faith during this trial is producing this really powerful, special endurance in you. You know what's so interesting? When you take a good look at Matthew chapter 24 and all the end time events, Jesus gives this grocery list of earthquakes and, you know, all sorts of disasters that are happening. But he gives one promise. He says, he who endures to the end, he shall be what? Save. There is one attribute God is trying to develop in your character, probably above all the other attributes, below the attribute of selfless love. And you know what that attribute is? It is endurance. It is endurance. It's the point where you're not giving up. And he says, when you're falling into various trials, he says, count it joy, and the reason why you can be joyful is because God is doing something special in your heart that cannot be done under, under, under any other circumstances. So I want you to think about those trials that you're going through right now or those issues that you're dealing with. And you're bringing in the perspective right now. In this trial, God must be doing something in my heart. You know something that's very interesting? Just an observation and I'm going to be probably uh, generalizing right now, so you can deal with it later on and talk to me if you want. 
But I generally find a lot of people who are a lot older will generally fall into one of two categories. Extremely bitter with life or extremely joyful. You see what happens when you get older? You begin to go through a rapid sanctification process. The last few years of your life, you begin to notice people around you dying, people you grew up with, family passing away. You also notice that the younger generation no longer pays attention to you. You find yourself with your own body falling apart. That's one of the reasons I think there may be some blessing in losing short-term memory. And you know what God does retain in them? Long-term memory. And you know what they find in long-term? When they were younger and they were joyful. And so a lot of elderly people, they will become very bitter by these rapid trials. And by the way, one of the things that happens too is that they begin to lose, many of them begin to lose their ability to be useful. My dad, when he lost his license because of his fading eyesight two years before he passed away, it was one of the most devastating things for a man to lose his driver's license. And so you can imagine as everything is being taken away, they're going through this rapid sanctification process and all these trials are happening in rapid succession. Boom, 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 boom. And what happens is when you're going through a trial, you can either allow yourself to become bitter by the trial or you can allow yourself to develop endurance and you grow in joy no matter what happens to you. Can you say amen to that? I don't know about you. If Jesus doesn't come back, that's the type of person I want to be. I want to be like one of those elderly people still doing the work of God, seeing people around in the church telling them they need to keep their skirt longer and stuff like that. I want to be a, a patriarch in the church who's positive, who's committed to God and coming up here willing to do anything the church needs me to do. I don't want to become bitter by trials. I want to learn to become more and more joyful. In fact, the Greek word is the word cheerful because of trials. God is, is developing me more and more and more and more and more and more. You know what I really believe? People at the end times who are going to go through a lot of trials. Like Ellen White says in Great Controversy, the realization will be worse than the anticipation. They will face things, it says in Daniel chapter 12, there will be a time of trouble such there has never been before. They're going to go through things that are going to utterly blow their mind away. But through all those trials, I really believe the end time generation is going to be the most happiest people who've ever lived in this world. Because they learned to count it all joy. That God was working in them something special. But look, here's the thing. James isn't just finished. He isn't finished and saying, well, this is what God wants to develop you, endurance. Look what he says in the continuation of this. Verse 4. But let patience have its perfect what? Work. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking what? Nothing. You know what God is ultimately trying to develop with the endurance? He's trying to develop a more mature character. I, looked, I studied something the, the boys at Andrews University were saying about character in the Bible. The word character in the Bible is generally never used to describe a sinless character. You hear what I just said? Completeness and perfection in the Bible is not generally used to describe a sinless character. It's generally used to describe a mature character. I'm not just talking about mature, somebody who knows how to handle their finances properly. I'm talking about mature, they become mature emotionally, intelligently, in, spiritually. They become more mature because of these things. 
In fact, I, I really believe with all my heart we're going to have a generation who's going to overcome at the very end in a very special way. But here's the thing to understand. God is not just trying to make you sinless. He's trying to mature your character. He's trying to develop you into a person that is so beautiful that when people see you, they're just drawn to you and say, I want to know more about your God. And Jesus, by developing your character, he's climatizing you for heaven. You hear what I just said? Do you know what it means to acclimatize? Who knows what it means? Raise your hand. If you know what it means to climatize. Obviously, no one here has climbed the Himalayas. Neither have I. What's it mean to climatize? Yeah, you're getting used to the area. In other words, as you're climbing the mountain, if you climb the mountain straight up, you know what happens? You could possibly die, lose your breath, faint, and you have to be carried off the mountain. So what happens is when explorers or uh, people who are climbing the mountains, they'll stop in a certain area, just maybe you could call it base camp, and they'll just wait there and wait till they've gotten used to the lack of oxygen, to the atmosphere, to the terrain. And after about a few days, they'll go to the next step up. And they wait till they become used to it, and they'll wait till they, they're ready for the next step. They don't just go straight up there. And here's the thing. The, one of the reasons why God isn't just taking everybody straight to heaven right away is because he knows some people are not ready for it. And so what he's developing in each one of us is preparation for heaven. Can you say amen to that? Amen to that. Well, let's keep going. Take a good look at verse 19. This is powerful stuff. Verse 19. So then... My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and what? Slow to wrath. You know what God is showing right here? He is showing the qualities to overcome in a trial. He's saying, look, when you're brought into trials, be quick to hear. Don't be one to just quickly jump in and insert your opinion. He says, no, be quick to hear. And then he says, be slow to speak. And then he says, be slow to wrath. And then he even says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Very interesting. He's actually describing not just different characteristics. He's actually saying this is a sequence. That when you're brought into various trials and situations, don't be quick to immediately defend your opinion. But be somebody who's quick to hear, somebody who's mature, someone who's saying, you know what, I want to hear this out. And then he says, do not be quick to speak. Just quickly say, well, I want to just say something right now. He says, be slow to speak. And then he says, be slow to wrath. That's where I stumble. I'll just be honest with you. If I hear something I don't like, boom, you're going to hear it from Anel, the wrath of Anel. As if I'm the only one who's guilty. And so he's describing something so powerful that the people of God need to understand for any trial, that any trial that you're a part of, be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. It doesn't mean slowly speaking. It means don't be quick to interject. And then be slow to wrath. In fact, if you follow the sequence, you will discover you will be very slow to wrath. If you are quick to hear and slow to speak. Instead of jumping in. And this will solve a lot of issues. So here it is. So here's James. He's trying to write, write to the whole church because they're dealing with this issue, issue over there, dealing with this issue over there. Some people are fighting over here. People are fighting over here. And he says, look, you need to be swift to hear. But you need to be slow to speak. And you need to be slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
I don't know about you, but I've never seen an angry man who's really represented Christ. Have you? We have to learn not to react. We have to learn to act. You hear what I said? We have to learn not to react. We have to learn to act, to be intentional. We cannot have this reactionary Christianity or this reactionary uh, just impulse in us when we deal with situations. We have to be quick to hear, wise, discerning, slow to speak, and that will lead us to be slow to wrath. This is something that God wants to develop in each one of us as we deal with various trials that happen. Any trial that happens, God says be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now let's keep going. We're going to learn something very interesting. Go all the way to verse 22. Now this is the one that really cut me up right here. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not what? Hearers only deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, it goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of what this work, of the work. This one shall be blessed in what he does. So if you don't know what he says, pay attention to the next few verses. He makes a difference in what he's saying. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, do we think we're religious? I hope so. That's why you're in church. Anyone among you who thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one uns oneself unspotted from the world. Do you hear what he's saying? This is very important, okay? He's saying, look, don't just be a talker, be a doer. Don't just be somebody who talks religiously, he says, go out there and let your actions speak. He said, don't just be someone who talks religiously. He says, get out there, go visit the widows, go visit the orphans. He's trying to make a difference between those who are merely hearers of the word and those who are doers. He wants us to understand that we need to be doers of his word. Can you say amen to that? Now, He makes something very interesting. Now I'm going to share something with you guys. When I was younger, I uh, unfortunately watched a lot of horror movies. One of the things I used to watch was movies about zombies. You guys know what a zombie is? I wish you didn't. But a zombie is something that's not quite dead. It's not quite alive. It's something that's undead. Right? It's usually some just ridiculous horror movie action guy or figure or actor, whatever, who like rises from the dead and is just chewing on people. What do we call people who chew on other people? We call them cannibals, right? And so still today, because of what I watched when I was younger, these images are still seared in my mind. Don't worry, I'm not going to eat anybody. And so like these things are still seared in my mind. You shouldn't watch that type of thing because it sticks with you. And so we think of zombies, we think of cannibals. Do you guys remember what happened just a few weeks ago with that man in Florida? Are you guys aware of that? He was out there cannibalizing on some guy's face. 
Now, we think of cannibalism as something horrible, something disgusting, something so grotesque, only somebody who is crazy or wicked would ever do. Can you say amen to that? But Ellen White actually says there is something far more worse than cannibalism. We think of, with horror of the cannibal who feasts on the still warm and trembling flesh of his victims. Ugh. But the results of even this practice, more terrible than they are, are the agony and ruin caused by misrepresenting motive, blackening reputation, dissecting character. Let the children and the youth as well learn what God says about these things. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do you realize this is somebody who was inspired by God? This isn't somebody who's just writing like Max Lucado, hoping that you would have a nice devotional. This is somebody who's writing something hardcore, and this is what the Spirit of God is trying to express to the people of God. And I'm so guilty of this myself. How many times have I spoken evil about somebody? She's saying it's worse than cannibalism. That's mind blowing. That your tongue can cause more damage to somebody than someone who's eating somebody. And when you begin to realize this, all of a sudden you begin to just, it begins to sink within you. Wait a second. Have I been guilty of a sin? Far worse than cannibalism? It is very possible, church family. Our words are so important. It either saves lives or it destroys lives. And God wants every one of our words to be seasoned with salt, to be encouraging. Not that we don't sometimes have to tell people things they need to hear, but we need to always be with the redemptive perspective that what I'm going to say, hopefully it helps this person. It doesn't make a difference where the individual falls in whatever arena, church or not church, we are not called to destroy people. Can you say amen to that? Because if we are, we are far worse than a cannibal. In scripture, she continues, backbiters are classed with haters of God, with inventors of evil things, with those who are without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity. It is the judgment of God that they commit such things that are worthy of death. He whom God accounts a citizen of Zion is he that speaks the truth in his heart, that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. When I was reading this, it was just hitting me over and over again. Have I been guilty of hurting somebody with my words? This morning I had to call somebody up, a good friend, and I said, I just want to apologize for you. Apologize to you, because I have been guilty about talking behind your back. Praise the Lord, he forgave me. But folks, here's the thing. God holds me accountable for my words. Here's something to understand about gossip. It always gets back to the person. You know that? There is a law on earth. It's called getting right back to the person. I'm going to demonstrate this. Has anybody ever gossiped about you? Raise your hand. How do you know? Because it got back to you. You see my point? And so God wants us as a church to, he wants us to remember this, that our words, there is life and death involved in it. God holds us accountable. And here's the thing. I, I got to tell you this experience. The Lord reminded me of this experience. 
So I had a interview, I was a, one of my supervisors who I really wasn't fond of. He invited me to lunch one day. He wanted to talk to me about stuff, and I was just like really dreading it. And so I was like, okay, I was eating on the opposite side of him, and we're just talking, and I'm just, so I get my cell phone, and I text one of my friends, and in my text, I say something negative. Oh, you see where this is going. I text, text something negative about the supervisor. Send it. Then I look back on my phone, and I accidentally sent it to the supervisor. <laughs> when I realized I did that, my heart was beating so fast. I was hyperventilating, and he's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. And I was looking at his phone, and I was thinking to myself, very deceitfully, I'm going to delete, get the phone and delete the message. God was teaching me a lesson that I needed to hear or experience. And this supervisor, oh, he didn't hold back punches. And he had to get up to go to the bathroom. And his cell phone was right there. I never forgot, I was just like, and he walked away, I was timing, I was like, how long is he going to go to the bathroom? I've got to access his cell phone, turn off, get to the messages and delete it. He walked away, and I was like, okay. He comes back, picks up his cell phone, and walks off. <laughs> and I was just like, I started praying, I was like, God, help me, help me. <laughs> and I just, I don't want to tell you the rest of the story, but I'll just say this, the Lord delivered me. He parted the Red Sea, and I just praised the Lord. He got me out of that situation. But here's the thing, folks. God will bring that back to the other individual. Many times, and when that person hears about it, it hurts. It hurts to hear things that are said about you that are not true. And God wants our words to be uplifting, and we as a church ought to be supporting people. And look, here's the thing. Just because someone holds a position differently from us does not in any way justify us still attacking them. Just because they hold a different position. And let me just take it a step further. In this realm of politics that are happening, there's never a justification for a Christian to attack another political individual. Never. There is never. We are not called to attack people. We can deal with issues, but we are not called to attack individuals. And God wants us to understand that when we're attacking that individual, we're attacking a potential person of the kingdom. And so God holds us accountable with something very great. He wants us to understand something. Take your Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. I want to show you something very interesting about the 144,000. This occurred to me during the week. I was just studying, and the Lord just blew this, blew my mind away when I was reading this. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. It should be our prayer that we should become part of that special group. Revelation chapter 14. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Pay attention to verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb standing on what? Mount Zion, with him 144,000. Names, or 44,000, having their father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And they heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, spiritually talking, not physically, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are redeemed from the first fruits among men to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found what? No deceit. What's it say about these end time people? They have no what in their mouth? 
deceit. Now, one of the characteristics that we can see about the 144,000 God's end time people is that they will be a people who have no deceit. Is that all that's said about them? What's the implication? If they have no deceit, the implication is they must be full of what? Of truth and love. Can you say amen to that? Of truth and love. But here's something so powerful. He said, I read this before. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. What's Isaiah 53 about? The lamb who was led to the slaughter, right? Isaiah 53, talking about the life of Christ. Blew me away when I read this. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Let's start with verse... Let's start with verse 7. Talking about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken, for our sins. For they had made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. Now pay attention to the next part. Nor was any what? Deceit in their mouth. What was found in his what? Mouth. Pay attention to this. Jesus had no deceit in his mouth. Can you say amen to that? The 144,000, the one of the reasons why they have no deceit in their mouth is not simply because of just the independent attribute, but because they're like who? Jesus. In other words, the people at the end time most represent Jesus than anybody else. But here's what's so powerful about this. Here is what is so powerful. It says in John chapter 6, the people who came to hear Jesus, the people who came to hear Jesus, even wanting to arrest him, you know what they said? Never a man spoke like this man. They were blown away by what Jesus would say, by his words that were seasoned with grace, that all who heard it were impressed, even his enemies, that this man, no one speaks like this man. Now why is that so remarkable? Because Jesus wants to give you that same attribute. Can you say amen to that? That when people hear you, they are blown away by how much love and grace and joy and how the Holy Spirit is working in your life by the words you speak. Can you say amen to that? So let me ask you a question, church family. This week, have you built people up or have you brought people down? Have you edified others or have you destroyed others? You know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13? It says, brethren, daily, when? Daily, let us exhort one another lest we be hardened by sin. Not the other individuals are hardened by sin, but if we do not lift other people up, you know what happens in our own heart? We're hardened. Cold towards the rest of this world. You know, I had a friend. He's so cool. I just have cool friends. And he told me this story how he was just driving, and there was this big old truck, and the truck was there, and it was just going, it was said B6. And then it had this sticker. You know what the sticker says? How's my driving? Call 1-800-blank-blank-blank. He picks up the phone, he calls him, and he's like, yeah, I'd like to just report something about B6. And the individual, the operator, she said, yes. He's an excellent driver. 
just really been blown away by the way he's driving. There was silence on the other end, and she was like, excuse me? Yeah, the person in front of me, he's just a great driver. He's signaling, excellent. He stops. He just does well. His brake lights are on. Just everything, the way he's doing this, it's just an awesome thing. He's doing a great job. Thank you. I appreciate that. We don't get calls like this, ever. You're welcome. Thank you. No, thank you. Click. Have you built anybody up recently? Have you encouraged somebody? People need encouragement. They don't need discouragement. They need to know that people, and I just appreciate, even when I was coming in and I hear Don Cowper, what he was saying, even when we're speaking to people, even our tones, the way we're communicating our tones, says something. When we're encouraging people, I praise the Lord, I have good people. A lot of my elders, they come walking in, and not just elders, my church members, and they'll check on me. Chris Simon, I see him coming in. How you doing, pastor? I see other individuals. Hey, are you doing okay today? I'm like, I'm supposed to be ministering to these people. But they're so uplifting and encouraging. God wants up to us to be that same way. And then people will say, there is nobody like you. You go to the grocery store, go through the, the cashier. If you see one of those new people who are just making a bunch of mistakes, you know what I say to them? I'm like, you're doing good. Keep it up. I mean, just even the words, it will change people's days and lives if we just encourage others and lift them up and draw them to the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of this world. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to understand that we need to be a people who encourages, not discourages, people who are edifying others. That when people are around us, they're drawn to us. Can you say amen to that? How many people want to be like Jesus? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of the tongue, Lord. And though we fall so short, God, we thank you for your incredible grace that gets us back up. Lord, today we want to be a blessing for the rest of the Sabbath, but into the new week, that whoever we encounter, Lord, we will look outside ourselves. And like it says in Job, he who waters others will himself be watered. May we be uplifting and encouraging like the 144,000, like you are, Lord. You see a brother who's hurting, a sister who's down. God, that we would go out of our way to lift them up. Father, help us not to be fearful, but help us to go after those who have broken hearts, who need a word of encouragement. Thank you, God, for speaking to us. Thank you for the book of James. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.